God bless you. So good to be with you today. We've just had worship and Pastor Mike led us in communion. Hope that you are coming to the Lord's table with your family and receiving. Uh, now it's time for the word. You know, worship and the word work together and all that we do works together to prepare our hearts to receive what the Holy Spirit has for us. I have a message for you today uh, from the scripture and I'm going to read it to you in just a minute here. But um, as we are in John chapter 4. Let's pray and thank God for the word. John chapter 4 is where our text is. I'm going to read you verse 21 through 34, trusting that uh, you are prepared, you've worshiped already, you're ready to receive the word. Today, as we read this, I'm going to give you some context. Our key verses are 31 through 34. So if you're taking notes, writing this down uh, in your living room, all dressed up with suit and ties on, I know how you're rolling in there to uh, have church in your house. So uh, let's thank God for the word, and then we're going to jump in. Father, I thank you this morning that your word is powerful, it's fresh, it's quick, it's alive, it's sharp, and it cuts right to the heart of the issues of our lives. Father, I pray this morning that these words would come not uh, by my intellect or the understanding of man, but they would come by the power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit that you'd touch people and encourage them this morning. And Father, that when we are done listening to what you have for us, we'd be refreshed in our spirit according to the scripture. I prayed in Jesus' name, amen. Now, here we are in John, and Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. Most of us have read this and thought about this and heard many messages on this. The woman at the well is a significant person in Scripture because Jesus comes to her. He breaks some traditions here. He's speaking to a woman. There's a lot of taboos that are broken, yet at the same time, he reveals himself to her as the Messiah, and she is so excited. She goes and gets her whole town to come and listen, and they have a little bit of revival there. Notice who Jesus reveals himself to, Samaritans. Now, uh, he's just spoken to her. He's asked for a drink of water. Uh, she, she is kind of like, what are you doing talking to me? He says, if you knew who I were, I, I, you would ask me for water and I'd give you living water. We pick up here in verse 21. Look what Jesus says to her. He says, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Verse 25, she responds, the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When the... That one comes, he will declare all things to us. Listen to verse 26, so powerful. Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. Wow. Verse 27, at this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he was speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak to her? So the woman left her water pot and went in the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things I have ever done. This, this is not the Christ, is it? Then they went into the city where, he was where they were coming to him. Now, verse 31 is where we're going to focus in on this morning. Meanwhile, verse 31 says, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. 
But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know not of. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did they? Jesus said to them, listen, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, or my will is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish or accomplish his work. So Jesus says something to them, and we're going to stop here for right now and just jump into that. But those are our two verses that we're really looking at here. He ministers to the woman at the well. Uh, culturally, that was a restriction. He shouldn't have been speaking to a Samaritan. He shouldn't have been conversing with a woman. But he smashes the barriers, and he talks to her. The woman is blown away by Jesus. Why? Because he shows his prophetic edge. He begins to tell her things that she did. He talked about how many husbands she had. You know, she was the New Testament Elizabeth Taylor. And, you know, here he is just reading her mail, and she's blown away. Now, she goes into her town, and she gathers everyone who would come, in verse 29, to listen to his words. In that moment, Jesus was completely focused on ministry. He was completely focused on revealing himself. He had just revealed himself as the Messiah to this Samaritan woman. Now he was going to minister to the people she brought. Listen, his own disciples didn't quite know who he was, yet he reveals himself to this Samaritan, to someone that the Jews would consider a sinner and someone that Jesus shouldn't even be talking to. Now, as he reveals himself, he's focused on ministry. He had an empty belly at that time. It was apparently time to eat, but he was drawing on an internal a supply of spiritual energy, and he was driven to impact these people. Have you ever been so busy doing something, so focused on doing something that you forget to eat? Now, I understand that for many of us, that doesn't happen as much anymore. But there are times where I've been so focused on building something, putting a project together, uh, you know, doing something technical, that I'll actually work for hours and all of a sudden, th- I, I missed two meals. That's a miracle for an Italian. You miss two meals. But why, why does that happen? Because we get so focused on what we're doing that we put aside the bodily needs. Now, unlike Jesus, his disciples were focused on their bodily needs, and it was apparently time to eat. Jesus' intense focus was so, you know, fixated on ministering here that he, he doesn't even think about it yet. In verse 31, they come to him and they simply say, Master, eat. So they see him laboring. They see him focused. But all they can think is he needs to eat. It's time to eat. Jesus, in an effort to snap them out of their kind of little bubble there and into his reality, he says something that he knows will confuse them at first. He says, I have food or meat. I have meat to eat that you know not of. And as usual, when Jesus says things like this to his disciples, they kind of react like a person who's dead asleep getting hit with a bucket of water. They're like, what is he talking about? And you can see that, you know, they have no idea what he's talking about. And as usual, they're confused. And they're like, did somebody, you know, bring him something? Did somebody uh, give him some food? Does he have a lunch pail under his robe? What, what is Jesus holding out on us? They, they don't get what he's saying. This idea of calling uh, something meat in scripture, we see this term used in many places. It describes something that restores our strength or refreshes us in scripture where you see someone, you know, was hungry, they were in a battle or they were on the run, whether it was David or whoever, but they eat meat and it refreshes them, it strengthens them. So Jesus, when he says, 
I have meat to eat that you know not of. This idea was that I have something in me, an internal source, an internal supply that strengthens me and refreshes me and drives me. And, you know, much like a city that was under siege, if you had a city in medieval times or biblical times that was under siege, they would surround that city and they would try to starve the inhabitants out. But if you had a city that was well-planned, they would have an internal water supply, whether a river or wells or something within the walls of the city. They would have an internal food supply. When you siege a city that has an internal mechanism to sustain life, it's going to be a long, protracted uh, event. And many times, the siegers outside would starve before the people inside. Jesus is like that city. He has an internal supply that he can tap into to strengthen him and refresh him. And he says to them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. They're thinking he stashed some food away. Somebody gave him something. They're totally missing it. Part of what it means for us to be mature believers involves us having a shifted focus. Our focus needs to shift. You say, from what, Pastor? From us always being concerned about meeting our physical needs to us being more concerned about meeting deeper spiritual needs in others. You see, that's what Jesus was modeling here. He wasn't like, well, you know, it's time to stop ministry because, you know, it's lunchtime. No, he was focused. Why? Because spiritually, he understood it was much more important to meet that deep spiritual need and, to, and then to meet the physical bodily need. And that's a mark of maturity that all of us must display at some point. Now, I know it's hard, but it shows us what? That we've got our flesh under control and that we're spirit-driven instead of driven by the flesh. Come on, say amen out there. Things that strengthen and refresh us spiritually have to come from God. Let me say that again. Things that strengthen and refresh us spiritually have to come from God. It's not, you know, a new job, a new position, a new location. Well, we're going to move in here. Then we're going to be refreshed. It's not, you know, us somehow going on vacation. So many people think vacation refreshes them only to come back tired, broken, aggravated. I, I usually come home from vacation needing a vacation. Yeah. And so the thing that refreshes us are not these temporal things, these physical things, these monetary things. What refreshes us and strengthens us has to come from God. There are two things that refreshed and strengthened Jesus. And the first thing that refreshed and strengthened him was this. He said, my meat, the thing that strengthens me, the thing that refreshes me is to do the will of him who sent me. Now, this can be hard for us to relate to if we're very, you know, much physical and carnal and we just, you know, we got to feed our flesh and pamper it. Th this is something that is really going to grate against a person who is, who is not very spiritual at all. But Jesus says, my meat, my food, my internal supply, the thing that satisfies me, strengthens me, refreshes me, is to do the will of him who sent me. Who, when we get up every morning, whose will do we set out to accomplish? When we pop out of bed. I don't know. The older I get, the less I pop out of bed. When, when I slowly wake up, Pastor Mike, right, in sections, right? We wake up in sections. So when I'm fully awake and get out of bed, whose will am I up to do? Am I, now, most people, let's be honest, most people are, they, they're going to do their will for the day, man. 
this is our generation. This is, you know, people without God, Christians who are worldly. What we do is we want to accomplish our will. So you can get up in the morning and say, I, I got a lot of things to do today, and I'm going to accomplish them. Or maybe you're, you know, you work for a demanding uh, boss. You have a demanding job. So you're going to do your boss's will all day, all day long. A lot of people feel like this. I'm working for the man, and I got to get all of this done, and I got stacks of paperwork, and I got all of these things to do. So you could get up wanting to do your will. You could get up having to do your boss's will. Some people, if you're married, you wake up to do your spouse's will. How many people got the honey-do list, right? Now, we got to serve each other, amen, as husband and wife, but, you know, we can do our own will. We can do our boss's will. We can do our spouse's will, or we can do the perfect will of our heavenly Father, amen? Now, realistically, we're going to do something to satisfy something from all of those wills. We can't just tell our boss, I'm praying today, I'll leave me alone, uh, secretary, hold on my calls. No, we have responsibilities. There are things we have to do for ourselves. There are things we have to do for our work. There's things we have to do for our spouses. But listen to me, only one of those wills can have first place in your life. And this is where it comes down to. When I wake up, if my will is not to do the will of my heavenly father, but I'm serving some other master, then something in my life needs to be restructured and recalibrated. Because if I'm living for me or anyone else, and I've got God's will on the back burner, there's going to be problems there. God's will has to be first priority in my life. God's will has to take first place in my daily routine. Romans 12.2 says this, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. God's will is good, acceptable, and perfect. Our job is to prove that God's will is good, acceptable, and perfect. How do we do it? By living his will and letting our life show as an example that the word of God is true. Jesus provided us a perfect example of what it means to put the Father's will first. Notice, even though Jesus was fully God, because he came and was born of a virgin and he took on the flesh, he completely submitted himself to his heavenly Father while he was here on earth. Now, think about that for a second. Jesus, being God, said, you know what? I'm gonna submit myself to my heavenly Father. Listen to a few scriptures here. John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Amen. Come on, Pastor Mike. Jesus knew what it was to be sent, amen? And he understood. He was there not to do his own thing like many of us do. Let's do my thing, what, my agenda, my, uh, you know, to-do list. No, he was there not to do his own thing, but to do the will of him who sent him. John 519. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself. Listen to this. Unless it is something he sees the father doing. And whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. Jesus said, I can only do what I see my father doing. Why? Because I'm not here to do my own thing. I'm here to do his thing because I've been sent. So powerful this morning. Whether we realize it or not, we are here not to do our own thing. If we belong to Jesus, we're here to do the will of the Father. We've been sent. We belong to God. Our hands and our feet, our, our skills and our talents, all of that belongs to him. So if I'm doing my thing or my boss's thing or my spouse's thing, if I'm doing anything but his thing, something in my life is not going to measure up. 
It's going to be a lot of issues there. John the Baptist was another one who understood what it meant to be sent. John was sent to serve something greater than himself. Listen to John 3, 28 through 30. You yourselves are my witnesses that I am not the Christ. John's saying, I'm not the Messiah, not me, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because the bridegroom's voice. So the joy of mine has been made full. He must increase and I must decrease. One of the most powerful things John ever said. What is he saying? It's all about Jesus. It's not about me. I'm just a forerunner. I'm preparing the way of the Lord. I've got to decrease and he's got to increase. John understood what it meant to be sent to serve something greater than himself. I want to encourage you today. Do you serve something greater than yourself? In this world, we serve the idol of self. It's all about self. You know, you improve yourself, work on yourself, read a copy of Self Magazine, self, self, self. And in the end of the day, uh, I'm not enough in and of myself. I need Jesus. I need to serve something bigger than myself, and so do you. And once we do, that we understand we've been sent, and we're here to serve something bigger than ourselves, then we can draw on that source of internal strength to fuel us and drive us, to strengthen us and comfort us. It's available to those who serve the kingdom of God. John also had an understanding that he was sent to serve someone greater than himself. He said in John a 1, 26 through 27, he was speaking about Jesus. Verse 27, he says, it is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. What, what a beautiful heart that John has here towards Jesus. He understands who Jesus is, not in the full sense of who he is, but he understands that he's unworthy even to take his muddy, dirty, crusty sandals off. What a beautiful heart. What is that all about? He understood he was here to serve something bigger than himself, the kingdom of God, and he also understood he was sent to serve someone bigger than himself, Jesus. When self is your God, you serve yourself, and what a small idol that is to serve. There is one who's bigger than all of us. His name is Jesus. He's the one who died on the cross and rose from the grave so that he could give us newness of life. He is Lord and Savior. We like the Savior part, but a lot of us balk at the Lord part. He is in control. We serve the kingdom of God. We serve someone bigger than ourselves. And when we understand this, that our will needs to be submitted to him and that our meat is to do the will of him who sent us, it unlocks a spiritual strength in us that the world can't understand, it can't copy, it can't counterfeit. It is the power of God moving through ordinary people. Wow, what a powerful thing. Doing the Father's will. Jesus understood he was sent. John the Baptist understood he was sent. Most of the drama and problems and exhaustion and dissatisfaction that we experience in life is the direct result of us serving the wrong will. Come on, let me say it again. Most of the drama, do you have drama in your life? Do you go from one problem to the next? Are you out of the frying pan and into the fire? Are you from one Facebook fight to the next Facebook fight? Hello. All that drama, what is that about? That's serving the wrong will. That's not the will of God for us to be entangled in the affairs of men, to be arguing with people over inconsequential things. Come on. 
So this drama, these problems, how about exhaustion and this dissatisfaction? There are so many people who are dissatisfied with life. There are so many people who are exhausted by life. Listen, serving the kingdom of God is a lot of work, but it doesn't exhaust us. Why? Because we tap into that, eternal, that internal supply that Jesus had. Jesus didn't say, well, you know, I could, I could witness to all these Samaritans and reveal myself, but I'm hungry. I got to take a break. You know, I'm a, I'm a union messiah. It's time for my break. No, he had that internal fuel supply. So if you're exhausted, dissatisfied, if you've got drama and problems, you know, in this world, we would have trouble. We understand that not all your problems go away by putting these things in line, but a lot of unnecessary things go away by putting this in line, that we serve someone greater than ourselves, that we see ourselves as sent. And if we're serving the wrong will today, if you can look and go, oh yeah, I'm serving me. I'm serving my spouse. I'm serving my boss. I'm serving whatever it is. You fill in the blank. But if we'll stop doing that today and start to make God's will number one in our lives, that when we get out of bed every morning, we're here to get done what he wants us to do, then we're going to see a change in our lives. And we're going to see an empowering in our lives that's going to refresh us and strengthen us. Come on, say amen. amen. The second thing that strengthened and refreshed Jesus was this. One was to do the will of him who sent him, and number two was to finish his work. So, you know, it's, it's not about starting projects or starting things. It's about finishing, amen? amen. And I want to touch on that a little bit. He, he, Jesus understood he was here to do the, 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 the Father's will, and that that would lead him to the cross. It would lead him to the point where he would give himself for the sins of humanity. So remember in the garden when he was praying, God, if there is any other way, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. See, that flesh part of Jesus didn't want to go to the cross any more than any of our flesh would want to go to the cross. If we had to sign up today in the church foyer, sign up for crucifixion next week. Who would like to volunteer? I mean, you, you need to, you know, nobody's signing up for that who's in their right mind. Jesus' flesh didn't want to do it either, but he, he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What was he saying? He was saying, in a sense, I'm not here to do my will. I'm here to finish the work that you sent me to do. And in finishing that, that was strength to Jesus. That was a, a, a supply of strength and comfort to him. It's so much easier to start things than it is to finish them. Can we agree? So much easier to start than to finish. Why is that? In fact, the older I get, the more you know, time and energy uh, is, is at a premium. And there, there's, it's so hard to finish certain projects. You know, you, I think you get to a certain age where you see certain things maybe broken in your house or certain projects. You're like, well, somebody can do that after I die. You know, the next homeowner can fix that. You know, the door's broke, it, the cabinet doesn't close. That's for the next. And we just get to the place where we just decide we're not going to finish that. Well, we can't do that with our Christian walk. We can't do that with our faith. It's much easier to start things than to finish them. And here's why. The first reason is this, because starting is exciting. Come on, starting a new job, moving to a new location, driving a new car, you know, uh, starting a new project. Starting is always exciting. A new hobby, a new journey, a new habit. There's a stimulating part of that that is fresh and it's new and it's uncharted. So people are excited by that. And understand something, it's easy to do the exciting part and that's starting. 
And that's why we start more things than we finish. Second thing I want to say about starting is this. Starting is not only exciting, it's the easiest part. Hello? Starting is the easiest part. Well, I'm a great starter. Well, that's the easiest part. You shouldn't brag about that. We should brag about being, well, we shouldn't brag at all, but, you know, are you a good finisher? Do you finish what you start? That's important. But starting is the exciting part. Starting is the easy part. And here's why it's easy, because the fatigue and the sacrifice and the cost haven't kicked in yet, because the pain hasn't kicked in yet. Come on, say amen. amen. You know, you hear about that expression, the honeymoon stage. Anyone heard? Starting is the honeymoon stage. Starting is the easy part. It's the fun part. It's the exciting part. What does that mean, the honeymoon stage? People say, you know, the honeymoon is over. The honeymoon is that proverbial period, and we use it, you know, from the demonstration in marriage, and it's marked by an intoxicating amount of affection and infatuation. The honeymoon is that season of excitement that blinds us to all the rough edges. You know, they say love is blind, right? And usually when you're courting, when you're dating, when you're in the honeymoon phase, you have not realized what you've married yet. The honeymoon phase is the easiest part. Because why? The hard work, the sacrifice, the cost hasn't kicked in. And the honeymoon, you know, when it's proverbially over, you've heard people say this, well, the honeymoon is over. Well, what does that mean? That means all of a sudden the things that were non-issues are now issues things that you never noticed before, things that used to be cute, come on, things that used to not bother you or even be on your radar, now they are big issues. Whether the toilet seat is in the right position or the cap is on the toothpaste or how someone chews while they're eating, come on, don't look so holy out there on me. And it's all true. And all of a sudden, I never noticed that before. Yeah, that's because you were in the honeymoon phase. That's because you were infatuated, intoxicated, and, and you didn't see all of that stuff. Now, understand something. Starters often, if you're a starter and you only like the starting phase, the exciting phase, people like that abandon relationships when the honeymoon's over. We see this in our world all the time. People go from one relationship to the next, from one romantic situation to the next, from one bed to the next. Why? Because at heart, they're starters. And they only want the fun part, and they only want the exciting part. And when it's gone, when the thrill is gone, they're gone, and they quit, and they want to start over. Understand, that's the model we see in our world. But we can't have that model in our spiritual life. We can't just start this and start that and, 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 and get halfway or do some of this or, or live half of the word or walk out half of our calling. I hope this is helping somebody today. We've got to be more than starters. We've got to be finishers. I think about the parable of the sower and how many uh, people who received the word, but they didn't have, they were starters. And because of that, the word didn't produce salvation in them. And they were scorched and they were plucked up. And, and if you read the parable of the sower, you'll understand the point I'm trying to make here about starters and finishers. Starters have desks full of half-finished projects. I have a home office, I have an office at church, I have, uh, you know, an office in my garage, and everywhere on them, I got to be honest with you, there are projects that I'm going to get to, amen? And so starters have desks full of unfinished project attics and garages filled with these things. Oh, I'm going to fix that, I'm going to refinish that, someday I'm going to get to that, come on. 
and, and it's, it started, but it's now finished. You know, we have computers full of unfinished projects that we've started, and they started off great. Maybe you, you, you started writing a book or a manuscript or something, and then just you, you got to chapter two, and you just, you know, that was it. Starters and finishers. Some might say, you know, is it really so bad to start things? Come on, pastor. It's exciting. It's stimulating. We learn something. We produce something. You know, it's all part of the journey. Listen, Luke 14, 28 through 30 warns us that being a starter and not a finisher is a bad thing. Listen to this, uh, Luke 14, 28 through 30. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down to calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Jesus, uh, in scripture here, this is a, a spiritual lesson here that we're seeing that, you know, to be a starter and not a finisher is something that will bring, uh, you know, bad, uh, people are going to look at it and they're going to realize just exactly what happened. Unfinished spiritual assignments are memorials of mockery to us. Wow. I was called, but I didn't receive the call. I put my hand to the plow, but I let go when it got hard. God put a demand on my life and opened the door of ministry for me, gave me an opportunity to work with the worship team, with the children, with the youth, to be an usher. But you know what? I, I started, and then as quickly as I started, I quit. And these things become memorials of mockery to us, our unfinished projects. In this case here with this tower, all that was there was the foundation and maybe the footings, and everybody who looks at it goes, where's the tower? Where's the building? A memorial of mockery. We have to count the costs. We have to learn to count the costs of spiritual things in our lives. And that requires us looking beyond the fun and excitement of starting. That, that, that means that we have to be mature enough to realize what it's going to cost us to follow Jesus. We used to say in Bible school, the call above all. And that's really the heart that we have to have if we're going to be finishers. We can't be excited about Jesus one day and, and not excited the next. Lukewarm is a bad condition to be in. It's either hot or cold. If you're cold, get into his presence till he heats you up again. If you're hot, stay in his presence so he keeps you hot. If you put your hand to the plow, keep going. Don't quit. Don't look back. Finish what you started in Jesus' name. Jesus said, you know what? What motivates me, what strengthens me is to do the will of him who sent me. You know what my internal source of spiritual energy is? To finish the work of him who sent me. Jesus was looking forward to the cross. Why? His flesh wasn't, but his spirit knew what's about to be accomplished on the cross is going to swing wide the doors of salvation open to whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord. Jesus looked past the pain of the cross. He looked past uh, the, the, the shame of the cross, and he looked ahead to the salvation it would produce in me and you. And he said, I want to be a finisher. In fact, I'm so motivated to finish the will of him who sent me that is a spiritual source of strength and energy for me. I want to close with this. Starters and finishers have completely different outcomes in life. 
starters and finishers. If you're a starter and you don't finish, there's a cost to that. Now, I'm not saying you're going to lose your salvation, and I'm I'm not saying that, you know, if you've given your heart to Jesus and you trust in him to be your salvation. Salvation's a free gift. It's not earned by works. It's not like, well, Jesus, I'd like to be saved. Well, you know, here's here's your manual. If you complete everything in there and you pass all the subjects, then we'll let you into heaven. No, it's a free gift. And say amen to that, because there'd be a lot of us standing on the outside of the pearly gates. But starters and finishers have different outcomes in life. Starters, if you're a starter and you don't finish, starters litter the sidelines of life. They have to watch other people do the things that they were called to do. Starters are filled with bitterness. Why? Because they never reached their God-given potential. Starters have a lot of regrets and a lot of excuses. Look, and when you get the call and you you start, but you refuse to finish, sure, you have to make excuses. Sure, you're going to have regrets. Why? Because not finishing is such a disappointing thing in life. So if you're on the sidelines and maybe you've thrown in the towel for a while, get back up, get in the race, push aside that bitterness, stop watching everyone else accomplish the things God's called you to do and get up and do what he's called you to do. Amen? So there needs to be no excuses. There needs to be no regrets. If you still have breath in your lungs, if I still have breath in my lungs, we can start and get up and get back in the race, amen? And so I encourage you while we're in this time where we have time and we're renewing different patterns and there's opportunities for us to recalibrate some things in our lives, take advantage of this situation, and get back in the race because starters are on the sidelines. They're filled with bitterness and regret and excuses. But finishers are different. Finishers are going to grit through it. They're going to rely on the strength of the Lord. Listen, our own strength won't carry us through. We've got to do our part, but then God does the other 99.9%, amen? And he, he is able to keep us. He's able to get us to finish. He's able to motivate us and protect us and supply our needs till we finish. All we have to do is have the heart to do his will, to recognize we're sent and to tap into that source of spiritual power that f- fueled Jesus. You say, how do we do that? We make his will number one in our lives. If we'll do that, he will keep us. He will empower us. He will get us to finish. And when we do finish and we cross that finish line and we fall into his arms for eternity and hear, well done, good and faithful servant, let me tell you something. That is going to be the best moment in life. Amen. More than any accolades of man, more than any trophy that Hollywood can pass out to themselves, more than any medal that someone can hang on your neck or pin on your chest, to hear Jesus say, the Savior of our soul, who died in our place, who looked past the pain of the cross and saw us on the other side and said, I'll do it to, to, to fulfill the will of him who sent me. When, when we hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, that has to be the one motivating thing in our life that gets us to stay as not just starters, but to become finishers. Jesus is sharing some stuff here with the disciples and they're confused by it. They don't quite understand, but he is trying to snap them out of their situation where they're so concerned about meeting their bodily needs to tap into the spiritual realm to realize there are bigger things for us to do with our lives than to be comfortable and well-fed, and to enjoy the pleasures of this world. Come on this morning. 
Let's bow our heads. Father, I just thank you this morning for a word like this, Lord, that helps us uh, to recalibrate, to refocus, and to, and to look at our lives and say, am I, am I just a starter? Am I just surrounded by uh, half-done things? You've called me. You've empowered me. You've equipped me. Ha- am I on the right path? Am I finishing the work that you sent me to do? Many of us At times, we're not even quite sure what we're called to do. We're not Jesus. His mission seems so clear. Ours sometimes seems so confusing. Father, I pray for everyone within the sound of my voice that you would prove to each one of us what you have sent us here for and what is the hope of our calling and why you saved us. And Father, it might be seem like a big thing or a small thing. Maybe, you know, to others, it it might not even seem like a call, but we're here to do something, whether it's just to love you and serve you, to do ministry, to raise godly children, whatever it is, show us, Lord, so that we wouldn't be those who are just starters, but we would be on the path to be finishers. I ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. I want to encourage you today, wherever you're at, whatever you're doing, whatever condition you're in, it's never too late to start serving Jesus. You say, Pastor, I never, you know, I never gave my life to Jesus. In just a minute, I want to, I want to give you an opportunity to invite him into your life. But if you're a Christian and you are saved and you're out there and you're saying, you know what, I, I hope that I'm on the right path, but sometimes, Pastor, it feels like I'm just treading water. I'm going to pray today that the Holy Spirit would reignite you and refire you and just let you know that you know that you know that you're doing what you're called to do and that you're pleasing to the Father. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters, those that are born again, those that, whose name is in the Lamb's book of life. Father, those who have served God for 10, 15, 20, 30, 50 years, God. Father, let us take inventory of our hearts and our lives to make sure we're not just starting things that you've asked us to do, but we're working towards finishing them. And Father, speak to those who might not know what exactly they're called to do. Father, by the Holy Spirit, show them so that they can have the peace that passes all understanding. Now, if you've never accepted Jesus before, I want to give you an opportunity. You say, why do I need to accept Jesus? Because Jesus came to die in our place. He came to the cross not to start a religion. The cross is not, uh, you know, about jewelry. It's not a fashion statement. The cross is not a religious icon. It is the vehicle of salvation. He died on the cross in our place. Why? Because the Bible says that the wages of sin are death. You and I were born sinners through original sin, and as soon as we could, we confirmed that we were sinners by sinning ourselves. And so what does a sinner need? A sinner needs a savior. And I thank God for Jesus Christ, who is the savior of the world. He didn't just come to save, you know, the special people or the real spiritual people or one group of people. But the Bible says, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. So salvation is for everybody. It's for anybody who says, I'm a sinner, I need a savior. You say, how does it work? We confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and we'd be saved. Romans 10, 9 and 10, it's a powerful scripture. And God made it so simple. We just confess I'm a sinner, we receive him as savior and he comes in and he changes us from the inside out and we begin to live a new life. If you want a clean slate, and a fresh start, I want you to repeat this prayer. Say, Lord Jesus, I recognize you're the Savior. I believe you died for me, and I believe you rose again. I surrender my life to you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me the power to live a different life. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you prayed that simple prayer for the first time, I wanna welcome you to the family of God. You say, Pastor, that sounds too easy. There's too simple. I don't have to do stuff. I don't have to pay. No, listen, he did all the heavy lifting. He died. He rose. You don't have to pay. He paid the price for us. Salvation is a free gift. But if you prayed that prayer, God has changed the trajectory of your life. And from this moment forward, begin to pray, get in a church that teaches the Bible. Forget about religion and develop a relationship with Jesus Christ. He'll never let you down. And from this moment forward, you belong to him. So God bless you today. I hope you've enjoyed the word. Uh, I know that uh, this worship team came here today to deliver uh, powerful anointed praise. I hope that you listen to the worship and all the things that we're doing here to keep you spiritually strong. There's a source of inner strength. Jesus had it, and it comes from being connected to him. So do your devotions every day. Pray every day. Listen to these messages on fgcweb.org. And Thank you for your online giving. You're keeping the church afloat. You're keeping the staff taken care of. I want to thank everyone who worked so hard for the sound guys that put all of this together and do it with excellence so that you can hear the word. Uh, stay connected. If you have any needs, call the church. We're here for you. We're making a lot of phone calls. Most of you should have heard from us by now. And uh, we love you. And we're looking forward to seeing you soon when these seats are filled. What a day that's going to be, amen? So be blessed. and. We love you here. God bless you.